Welcome to the Yoga Connection with Zorananda. The Yoga Connection is a deep dive into everything yoga. Follow along with Zorananda and his guests as they discuss yoga history, spirituality, different practices, and the many misconceptions that have followed along throughout the years of yogic tradition. Friends, hello, and welcome to the Yoga Connection. So my name is Zorananda, if you're new to this podcast. And for my regular listeners, welcome back. Little disclaimer, I'm sort of just getting over um, a head cold. Um, I caught something from my niece last week, um, playing with her. And uh, so now I've been congested and feverish and gone through the whole gamut of head congestion from earaches you name it and you can hear it in my voice and my chest so I'm going to do my best here to get through this I want to stay on track with posting an episode every week so you might hear me clear my voice but I'm going to do my best to uh, stay on track with everything Um, and, you know, the extent of my, you know, sickness, um, is in part by me being foolish, um, on a whole other separate thing. But today, this is a solo episode and I am continuing, um, staying on track with going through the Prana Bayus and... If you haven't listened to uh, my episode um, on the first Pranavayu, upon Vayu, please listen to that and check that out. I was planning on doing um, a little bit of a refresher on the Pranavayu, but I ended up writing a lot on on the Prana, on the second Vayu here. So um, I would say please check that one out. Um, But they don't really build on each other. Like, of course you can listen to this one, whatever. Um, so let's get into it. This second Vayu is called Prana Vayu. Uh, and it's a weird thing and I'm going to get into it uh, in my script here. So, uh, again, this, um, Prana Vayu is the second wind in the set of five pranas Um, and this vayu is responsible for the upward force within our body and it primarily deals with the lungs and the inhalation of breath and this force is very important as a driving catalyst for all the other vayus and uh, the inhale of breath supplies the body with the initial drive of circulation to take place Right, so there's a link there between the two as the second bayou, the pran bayou, um, is a driving force for the other bayous. Um, so is breath um, in <clears throat> circulation as it supplies oxygen to the heart, then the heart can pump. Um, it supplies oxygen to the nervous system, which then supplies feeling, it supplies oxygen to the brain, so on and so forth. Um, personally, I like to try and put myself in the seat of 
a yogi in the Himalayas hundreds of years ago when trying to figure this stuff out pertaining to the pranavayus or the chakras or um, the koshas, whatever it is. So I'll imagine that I'm in a cave or in a forest doing breath work, coming to the realization of the pranavayus, and in this case, the second vayu, the pranavayu, um, and the upward force. So when I'm seated with my eyes closed, inhaling, the first thing I notice is a small movement upwards with the body. So you can try it right now. Just close your eyes if you're in a safe place. Um, Otherwise, take a deep inhale. And as you inhale, watch how your rib cage lifts and how the top of your head rises upwards, even just a centimeter or less or so. And I like to think this is how the yogis of the past made these kinds of conclusions. It was direct experience from the practices that they had passed down to them. And over the generations, each new set of yogis had some kind of insight or discovery to add. And so it seems that these insights and discoveries came about through simplicity, right? So they're just seated, they're doing their practice, and they're not overthinking things. They're putting themselves in a state of mind where they're observing the effects. On the other hand... Yoga loves to make things a bit confusing. So you'll see in many cases, one word representing a multitude of ideas or definitions. So in this case, pranavayu, right? So you have pranavayu as a term to describe the whole set of vayus. Then you have pranavayu describing one vayu. And so uh, my teacher, Vishwaji, pointed this out during the 300-hour teacher training I did with him uh, back in 2016, and he laughed, saying uh, he knows it's confusing, so his solution was to drop the A at the end of each word. So instead of apana, you have apan. Instead of prana, you have pran. And so on uh, for all the other values. And for this value we were talking about today, he would call Pran pran. So he wouldn't call it the pranavayu because it would be confusing. So he would just say pran pran. <laughs> uh, and I think the point of his logic is really just to have fun with it. Uh, there's a time and place for taking things seriously, of course, especially considering your own personal dedication to your practice and the austerity towards your teacher. But when it comes to um, how you want to approach the wording of things, there's rooms to drop the seriousness, seriousness and to have a bit of fun, right? Uh, So let's dive into the technical side of pran pran. Uh, Your brain needs oxygen to function. Your nervous system needs oxygen to function. And your blood needs oxygen to function. We all know this thanks to science, of course. And we don't even need to put any um, conscious effort for these functions to take place, right? So like even right now, you're not thinking to yourself that you need to breathe, that you need to pump your blood, that you need oxygen in your nerves. It's just happening autonomically. And our bodies are set up to ensure that the brain, blood, and nerves are getting all the oxygen that they need to operate, right? It's distributing everything um, equally to the best of its ability. Um, And for the most part, our bodies do a damn good job of taking care of these functions. Uh, However, we can't help but periodically slightly jeopardize how this function works. Uh, 
Uh, for example, we smoke um, either tobacco or weed or crazier things. Uh, we don't exercise. We breathe shallow. We don't drink enough water. Uh, we eat shitty foods. And hey, I'm in that boat. I like to smoke weed. I'll forget to drink enough water. But I do exercise and I do keep a good amount of attention on how I'm breathing through the breath work that I do. <clears throat> so just by living your life, you may be doing inadvertent damage to your brain, heart, and nerves, and blood without even knowing it because of how well your body can mask the little micro damages that are occurring. Now, this isn't to alarm you. We are all doing it. And for the most part, the body is equally good at maintaining equilibrium for a long time. So um, I always think of this example of Keanu Reeves talking about two different people that he's had in his life. Um, of uh, A woman who exercised every day, ate very healthily, ended up getting cancer. And she was so distraught. And he th thought, like, that was happening just because of her stress levels, right? And then he had a biker friend, which is this older guy. They're both the same age. Uh, this woman and this older guy smoked cigars, drank, ate crappy food. He was overweight, but was jolly and happy, right? So... Again, we're all doing it. And like I said, for the most part, the body's equally good at maintaining equilibrium for a long time, right? So even if you, like myself, are partaking in things, your body's pretty good at keeping checks and balances. But I think I can speak for many people that we do get instances where our, quote, habits are getting out of hand if it's indeed smoking too much, drinking too much alcohol, eating too much, Um that we don't want to run the risk of developing some kind of illness that's like untreatable because we are ignoring the signals from our body, right? Um, but what I like about this particular yoga system, um, the pranavayus, is that it brings direct awareness to how those ha bad habits are negatively affecting you. So right now, I'm a prime example here. So uh, a few days ago, while, um, while I first started feeling this kind of sickness, and while my body has been trying its hardest to fight off this cold, um, in the first days of it, I thought, well, I'm not feeling too bad. This is just a 24-hour thing. Uh, you know, I can smoke some weed. It'll be fine. So over the course of that night, I smoked a few spliffs and I'm sure you can guess what happened the next day. I was massively worse. Um, so it's, it's funny and a bit tragic that this podcast episode is on the docket today talking about keeping your body healthy through breath work. And I totally did the opposite. I'm reminded that as a human, regardless that I'm a yogi and I'm going to make stupid decisions. Um, sorry, I'm going to rephrase that. Uh, I'm reminded that as a human, regardless that I'm a yogi, I'm going to make stupid decisions. And so the synchronicity here is that I can dive into the, dive into this material and talk it out and remember that the path I agreed to dedicate myself to, um, and that I don't have to be hard on myself. Uh, mistakes are definitely going to be made throughout my life. And 
as the wise Aaliyah once said, if you, if at first you don't succeed, dust yourself off and try again. <clears throat> so let's go a little bit deeper here. Um, again, I have <laughs> a lot to cover. Um, I may not hit the one hour mark. I like to get to that point and I've been pretty successful on it, but just with how I'm feeling today and, um, you know, how much information there is, we'll, we'll see, but, uh, I want to make it worth your while. And, um, you know, I'm actually, I'm, I'm striving to put together these podcast episodes in a way that, um, are not only educational, um, but there's facts to it. And, um, I, th I really feel I did a good job in, in laying all this information out. So, um, yeah, so on the positive side, when breathwork is utilized regularly and properly, your body is getting a larger amount of oxygen. <clears throat> so in our day-to-day -day breathing, we do natural shallow breathing. So your body autonomically is just taking in the amount of air that it needs to just function normally, right? Uh, but when you introduce breathwork, depending on the type of breath work, if it's really strong and powerful breath work, like um, uh, Kapalabhati or Bastrika, or if it's soft and gentle, like um, uh, Analoma Veloma, or if it's just simply a counting breath where you're inhaling for, say, eight seconds, you're holding the breath for four seconds, you're exhaling for 10 seconds. Um, in those techniques, you are deliberately increasing the amount of oxygen that you are taking in and uh, releasing. So, um, but not only is there oxygen, but there are many other gases that we don't really talk about, like nitrogen. So in fact, uh, the air that we breathe only contains around 21% oxygen, while 78% of the air that we breathe is nitrogen. Uh, then for the remaining percentage, there's a mix of carbon dioxide, neon, hydrogen, argon, etc. Um, <clears throat> though nitrogen doesn't play a role in respiration like oxygen does, it does play a role in building proteins in the body. And, but I'm not going to get really into that. I just wanted to kind of add this little bit of information um, for you guys. Um, so while I was doing this write-up, I found a study in the National Library of Medicine website <clears throat> that looked at the effects of oxygen concentration and flow rate on cognitive ability and psychological responses in the elderly. Though the study is on elderly folk, I think we can consider the importance of oxygen here on anyone generally. Um, and even in the study's opening statement, uh, it states, the supply of highly concentrated oxygen positively affects cognitive processing in normal young adults. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm just going to take a drink for a second here. Of course, just with breathing alone, um, so that's the end of the quote. <clears throat> of course, just with breathing alone, we can't get the highly concentrated oxygen levels they used. So... Uh, especially in the air that we breathe, only contains 21%. So, And in the study, they used three levels of oxygen, 21% at one liter per minute, 93% at one liter per minute, and 93% at five liters per minute. 
Now, <clears throat> think of that difference. So right now, when we're breathing, uh, the body is taking in tw- uh, that 21%. And it's, and it's processing it through the whole body, right? It's giving it to um, the tissues. It's giving it to your nervous system, uh, your organs, your blood, your brain. And <clears throat> so imagine getting 93% oxygen and, and what, what could that do, right? Um, and so in this study, it's showing that increasing the oxygen levels has, um, a noticeable effect on cognitive abilities. Um, so I'm not going to go too much more into more detail regarding the study. I'll put the link in the podcast description for you to take a look at. Um, I did find another study, um, regarding, uh, what was it? I'm going to find it here. Um, again, the study is in the National Library of Medicine, and it's the physics of human breathing, flow, timing, volume, and pressure parameters for normal on-demand and ventilator uh, respiration. So basically, um, uh, like the function of oxygen in the body. So these are two really good, um, and they're, and they're short. Uh, it's just basically, it's not the full article. It just goes into the abstract, the overview. Um, and, uh, some part it's easy to read and some parts, you know, it's pretty heady and in all of the, um, little terms and the, and the math and the data, but those links will be in the description. Definitely recommend you guys checking them out and, uh, giving them a read through. So, um, so my question here, uh, I'm just going to change this here. Um, so my question here is, did the rishis and the yogis from hundreds or thousands of years ago figure this out? Um, that's tough to say, right? There really isn't any direct information from scriptures that talk about oxygen levels and how increasing oxygen helps with cognitive processes like the, like the study proves, uh, because, well, they didn't have that kind of language, right? Um, however, what can be indicated is that the practices those yogis did inform them on how to create the structure of the pranavayus through their experiences of the breathing techniques. Um, and, and so it's like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? And so in, in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking that the, the knowledge and the structure of the pranavayus came out of these practices. So it's, it's, uh, built on generations. Um, so I imagine that, you know, the early, early yogis who are passing on this knowledge are passing it on because it's, um, it's secretive. Um, they are being, um, what's the word, um, uh, kind of criticized for doing these practices, right? Because, um, in a little bit of yoga history here, um, the, the Vedas and the, and the Brahmins of the Vedas slowly became corrupt because in, in their system, um, of, uh, <clears throat> uh, how do I want to say it? So how you decide who's a Brahmin, who's a warrior class, who's a farming class, who's an untouchable, who's in the business class, etc. Um, the Brahmins 
who were upholding the Vedas, um, they started choosing their own children to be the Brahmins to maintain their own power in disseminating the, the, um, the knowledge of the Vedas. Right. And so what ends up happening is that there's, uh, this nepotism that starts to happen, right? Because they're going to choose a child who may not want eat, want to be a Brahmin. Maybe they wanted to be a farmer. Maybe they just didn't want to do anything at all. Maybe they wanted to be a warrior, but, um, so what ended up happening is that there are, there were <clears throat> Brahmins within the sect and Rishis within this, uh, if within the sect who left and cause they were noticing this corruption and they're like, we can't, we, we need to maintain the integrity of the teachings and there's some corruption that's happening here. So then, um, some Rishis and Brahmins left and went into exile and created the Vedanta. And the Vedanta is essentially a response to the Vedas that then creates the Upanishads, that then creates um, a new way of approaching the practices. So whenever you um, go to a yoga class and you hear like um, crane pose or tree pose, that came out of the Vedanta. And that was because they were taking on um, uh, young students. So they would go into villages and they would handpick students who, or disciples who, um, uh, they would test, right? Because they wanted to keep the um, essence of the Vedas, where they're not just going into villages and taking all of the boys. They're taking choice ones that <clears throat> had um, that were adept to wanting to become a Brahmin. But um, would follow these um, other like uh, sadhus and, and rishis um, and uh, kind of exiles Brahmins instead. And so they would use terms like tree pose and tiger pose and crane pose and fish pose as a way to teach children. Because when they were learning from the Vedas, uh, it was really hard to grasp. It was like really archaic in their languaging. And so they're like, well, we want to be able to teach these children in an easier way. So it's more memorable and it can be passed down better. Um, so I'm just going to find where I'm at here because I can kind of go on rant sometimes. Yeah. So, um, with that, um, I believe that the the pranavayus as like an um, energetic system came out of generations of these yogis that were doing these practices, right? And then so over time, there's some yogi that or yogis that are working together that have these insights. They're a newer generation. They're thinking, you know what? Like we've been doing these practices, but there's, there's gotta be a way to understand the flow of the energies. Um, and so when they start to look into it, then the structure comes out of it, right? That's how I see it at least. Um, and so, uh, there is a hurdle to jump over here. Uh, the, the yogis of the past stress that these practices must be done daily but why? And they repetitively spoke on the main goal that they're striving for is samadhi, is enlightenment. 
But how does breath work? Studying the pranavayus and increasing oxygen lead to that kind of experience. Now, I can only speak on what I know from my own anecdotal experiences and what I've studied and uh, the history of yoga and like, you know, what I've picked apart over the last like 10 years and what I've learned from uh, my teacher, Yogrishi Vishvaketu, who is a legit Himalayan yogi. He has a PhD in yoga. He has his own successful worldwide yoga school called Akanda Yoga. Um, highly... Um, um, yeah, check it out for sure. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, my brain <laughs> is like functioning at a lower capacity of energy. And so I lose words really quickly. And so I'm like doing my best to, uh, get through this and be coherent and, uh, make this make sense. So I'm so glad that <laughs> I fucking made, um, uh, all these points. Otherwise, if I tried to free flow this, oh, it would have been a mess. But um, anyway, let's continue. So uh, there must be a link here between increasing oxygen levels, promoting cognitive processes, and a new profound experience. Okay. Uh, it's a bit of a stretch, but hear me out. So the yogis of the past would dedicate themselves to a 12-year sadhana, so a 12-year practice that required a daily practice at a minimum of two hours a day. Most of the yogis who did reach some level of self-realization um, would be in practice and meditation for up to 12 hours a day. Um, an example of this is Paramahansa Ramakrishna, um, he was a devotee of Kali and he took on a 12 year sadhana where he was doing two to 12, like it depends, like he had to do it every day, but he would at least, he would do at least two hours a day, but he would do sometimes like 12 hours a day. And sometimes his practice is like maniacal dancing and laughing and like, just, you know, <clears throat> looked crazy, but there's, um, uh, uh, there's a reason to his madness, but um, that is a whole other podcast that I can go into. Um, so my thought here is that doing intense breath work for hours a day, then intense meditations for hours a day, uh, yield specific results. Um, especially to have the capacity to have an intense enlightening experience, your brain must be prepared for it. Thus, my thought is that pumping greater and greater amounts of oxygen into your body for years and years every day helps with increasing the cognitive capacity to endure what a great enlightening experience would be. So I'm going to say that again, okay? My thought is that pumping greater and greater amounts of oxygen into your body for years and years every day helps with increasing the cognitive capacity to endure what a great enlightening experience would be. So what does that mean, right? Um, so another question is, is there more happening when doing yogic breath work that sort of goes beyond breathing air? Right. So um, there's a reason why this Vayu is called Pran, Prana, right? Prana means life force. Now, I figure this is the link between breathing techniques, oxygen levels, cognitive processes, and enlightenment. That we're not just breathing air when we do the breath work. 
we are increasing the potency of our life force. We are energizing the air particles with our own life force deliberately. And so it's not just about our brain, heart, blood, and nerves that are getting more oxygen. They're getting amped up with charged life force. In this case, prana and over in this case, prana. And over 12 years of doing an intense sadhana every day for hours a day, just imagine what that would do. It starts in small increments of increased vigor to 12 years later reaching a critical mass of amplification. At least that's how I interpret the practice um, <clears throat> to yield. So technically, that's the end of my, of my notes. Um, but what I can add here <clears throat> is that um, essentially the yoga practice is an experiment. You are taking elements from all these different things. So uh, if it's <coughs> asana practice, so like your physical practice, doing vinyasa, doing the postures, then that's one variable. Then breathing techniques, then meditation, then mantra. Um, it's equating to something, right? And so in this, in, in this sense, um, uh, it's better to look at it scientifically than anything, right? And to make these links that make sense. Um, and so in just in my mind, right, looking up this article about... Um, how much oxygen the body takes in and then what increasing oxygen does to cognitive abilities, it starts to make sense that if you're wanting to make a fundamental change to yourself physiologically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually, that living your life as you're doing it now autonomically um, is not going to produce results. So you have to add certain um, elements you have to add certain experiences to help make those fundamental changes and so that's where I think yoga comes into play um, and so when you see it as more of an experiment and more of a scientific lens um, then you can bypass the whole religious side of it you can bypass the whole weird cult side of it because you don't want to go in that direction like yes it's great to find community, right? So it's great to go to events where there's a big crowd of people doing this together. But the traditional way of approaching yoga is interpersonally. So these sadhus would leave society. They would leave their family. They would leave everything and go into a cave and go into the jungle by themselves where they would find a handful of other sadhus that are doing this work, right? So there's so much more that can be discovered in the yoga practice when you take it as an interpersonal thing and where you're experimenting with it. And so that's what I love about yoga is like, um, there's really no harm trying to figure these things out. Where harms comes in is when you let other people direct how you're going to go and do things. So say if uh, you have a pretty strong vinyasa flow practice, right? But there's some postures that 
you just can't get into. And so you go on Instagram and you're seeing all these other yogis doing all these crazy things. Largely because before they were yogis, they were gymnasts. Uh, they were acrobatics, right? So then you try doing the postures that they do and you end up hurting yourself. And so <clears throat> when you shut that out and you take on these practices for yourself and you're doing it at a pace where you know you can handle, you'll start to learn things about yourself and you'll start to discover really what this body is for. And that's where I think when we take the systems out of the scriptures and um, out of the text and we start to apply them, not because we're trying to compete with someone else, not because we're trying to build a you know six-figure, seven-figure Instagram business. We're learning to take the autonomic responses, the autonomic forces that our body is, and we're trying to amplify the energy of them by bringing awareness and consciousness through what these systems have. So this is how I approach um, learning about the pranavayus. It's not just about like reading them on the internet. It's like, okay, so now when I do my practice, how does a pranavayu come into play? So when I'm in seated forward fold, I'm not thinking, oh, I need to go deeper and I need to push myself so I can look better on the camera. I'm thinking to myself, okay, how does Apana play into this? Okay, I'm seated on the floor. I have my legs straight ahead of me. I'm reaching. I'm taking a hold of my toes. Whether or not my knees are fully touching the ground or not, <clears throat> doesn't matter. Whether or not I have a slight bit, like rounding in my back, doesn't matter. Okay, all of that stuff smooths out over time. So what my focus is then is, okay, how am I experiencing apana? How am I experiencing the downward force so that <clears throat> I can create um, an, a, an experience and to be more informed about this knowledge that I, I read from a book or from the internet, right? But what I think happens in, in, social, in the world of social media is that it's really easy for people to just read things on the internet and then to jump online and make a post. And then um, they forget or they ignore that reading that information um, was to benefit them in gaining knowledge. Where reading that information was to benefit them on making this video and how many views that they would get. And so that's what I'm concerned about and what I look for even when I'm on social media. Because man, I love it too. I go on Instagram and I scroll, I go on Reddit and I scroll, I go on Facebook and I scroll, you know, like I like, um, social media and I like the variety and I like all the silly videos and stuff. But when I come across yoga stuff, I scrutinize it in a way because I look at it in a different lens where I'm like, okay, what is this person actually trying to do? Are they actually trying to educate or, um, is this just stuff that they found and then they're making a video of it because they can kind of capitalize on it. <clears throat> and that might be some paranoid thinking, but whatever. Um, the point is, um, when you take on the traditional way of the practice, um, you start to, 
experience it differently than if you were to go to a yoga class, if you were to go to a yoga workshop, um, and that your personal sadhana that has nothing to do with anyone else is this more scientific um, exploration and experimentation. And so then when you're looking at, say, Pran Pran, right, the second bayou, so funny, um, you're seated in meditation, you're breathing, and I would think to myself, okay, how does um, uh, this, this pranavayu come into play, right? Like I said at the very beginning, it can be as simple as you have your eyes closed, you take a deep inhale, you feel how your body naturally moves upwards, right? So then when you're in postures, you're applying the second bayou in raising upwards because what's going to happen when you're um, a little bit tight um, say you're going into your practice and maybe you didn't practice for a few days and you're getting back onto your mat and you're like oh man when I come into this twist I just feel everything tighten inwards and so that can be an indication of the next prompt, the next value that we're going to look at. So Samana value, everything is pulling in. And so I would think to myself, okay, so if I want the most out of this posture, say if it's just like a seated twist, like uh, Matsyandrasana, you know, where does the Apana, uh, Apan value and the Pran value come into play? Okay, so the Apan value is I'm grounding down through my hips. You know, say if I have my feet crossing the way, where I'm in the seated twist and I have my, say I'm, I'm twisting to the right, I have my right foot on the ground, I'm twisting, so I'm, I'm grounding through my seat, I'm grounding through that right foot. And then as I'm twisting, the body will naturally want to draw in to twist, right? But that's going to be super uncomfortable and it's going to be super t- tight. So before you even twist, you want to inhale and lengthen and rise up out of your seat. So even though you're grounding down and the upon force is there, you're inhaling and rising up. You feel that you're lengthening through your spine. You're bringing your chin and you're kind of pulling it in towards your throat and down and you're rising up through your crown. And then you exhale, you keep that length and then you twist. And that will inform you on how much movement there is in your spine. Because otherwise, if you're just going to twist, chances are you're going to collapse into your right rib and you're going to kind of twist down. But you don't want to twist down and crunch things in. You want everything to be rising up. And so that when you're twisting, you're twisting from each vertebrae rising up. Otherwise, what's going to happen is that you're going to crunch down and you're only going to twist from like a couple of the middle vertebrae and you might put more stress on your spine than you actually would want. And so then the pranavayus in this case are informing you on what's happening in your body. And so that when you bring your awareness into, okay, I'm going to I'm going to ground down through the seat. I'm going to ground down through my legs. Before I twist, I'm going to take a deep breath in. I'm going to extend upwards into the pran force. I'm going to stand upwards. I'm going to exhale, keep all that, and then twist. And so it's a whole new experience then. And sadly, 
yoga has kind of run amok, right? So there's 200 hour trainings absolutely everywhere. You can do an online 200, 200 hour training for 500 bucks and you can be a certified yoga teacher and start teaching yoga, right? <clears throat> and, um, and so what happens is that stuff like this gets missed, right? And that's not to say that there aren't great yoga teachers who have just done a 200 yoga teacher training. There are, but this is the difference of being a yoga instructor and being a yogi even a yoga teacher and a yogi, right? So when someone says, oh, I'm a yoga instructor, they're not a yogi. And that's not to be placing criticism on them or any negativity. It's just that the desire to be a yogi is much different than the desire of being a yoga instructor. The desire of being a yoga instructor is to have a business where you are more of like a fitness coach than you are a yogi where being a yogi is a full dedication of a lifestyle you know and it can it can be kind of scary it's an in, intimidating right so when you when you think of yourself as like oh i i you know i was in and this is very typical i hear the story so much uh someone will say to me oh i was a gymnast and i hurt my back and it ruined my career. And so um, my physical therapist showed me yoga and I got into yoga and it fixed my back. And because I couldn't be a gymnast anymore, I got into teaching yoga. So now I'm a yoga teacher. I'm a yoga instructor. But does that make that person a yogi? I would say initially no, because there are initiations that have to take place for you to realize that the responsibility of a yogi goes much deeper than just whatever it took to, you know, heal that injury and then to start teaching yoga as a business because you couldn't be a gymnast anymore, right? You had to shift um, your business model. And so what can scare people about the term yogi is the indication that it's a lifelong endeavor. <clears throat> and so for me, I realized right away that I was a yogi, that um, it wasn't about any shift from, you know, one sport to the other. Um, it's because I had some insecurities that, oh, well, because I couldn't succeed in this sport, then I might as well go to this one. And, and you see that quite often. Like if you go on Instagram right now and just look up yogis, chances are a good majority of them have some story where they were trying for the Olympics. They were trying for some sport. Um, they were in CrossFit. They were in some, something where they hurt themselves and they couldn't do it anymore. And, um, and so, uh, it's, it's easy to fall into this kind of criticism where, um, it's really negative and it's, um, pessimistic. Um, and so what I like to lead into is what my teacher tells me and tells his student is that all yoga is good yoga and that there's a, um, there's a range. So there's a spectrum 
of being a yogi and that it starts by entering into your life in some unique way. Um, luckily for me, it had nothing to do with um, injury. It had everything to do with spirituality. So I was already on the path of looking into spirituality and what it meant to be connected to God, what it meant to have all kinds of like weird experiences when I was young. Um, I would have outer body experiences. I'd have crazy lucid dreams. Um, and so my path into yoga was already set up on the spiritual side. And so for me to go into yoga as a spiritual practitioner, it already made sense. It already made sense that I was like, oh yeah, I'm a yogi and this is what I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life. Whether I'm, I'm teaching it in a studio or not, I'm going to have some kind of practice. I'm going to have something that continues and uh, where yoga is a priority no matter what. And um, so even though I'm not teaching at a studio right now, and I'm like slowly getting back into my uh, regular practice. This podcast is a great outlet for me to exercise my knowledge on on this stuff because I spent the last 12 years diving into all this stuff. And um, like the book that I've written, Future Life Progression, Meet, Meeting Your Future Self, is based on a lot that I've learned in my yoga practice, right? <clears throat> Even though that's a like a whole other vein of meditation, um, it's still a product of what I learned. Um, and in the next couple of years, what I'm going to be working on, um, and that's partly what, um, this podcast is about, especially all the, <clears throat> um, solo episodes. Sorry, I'm just going to take another drink here. Uh, I feel my voice, uh, failing me. That over the next couple of years, um, I'm going to have my complete kind of yoga encyclopedia written. So I already have um, the full outline of um, it's going to be made up of three parts. Um, the first part is all about Ashtanga yoga. True. I don't want to say true Ashtanga yoga, but the original Ashtanga yoga, that is the eight limb path. So it's not Batabi Joyce's Ashtanga yoga. He made his own system that he called Ashtanga Yoga and it's like the it's like the primary series right I think there's four series to it um, and it's like all uh, kind of sadhana based <clears throat> but um, the first book is all about Ashtanga Yoga um, it's the eight limb path so the yamas and the niyamas and um, um, asana pranayama pratyahara dharana dhyana samadhi um, the second book is all about the energetic system. So uh, mainly the chakras, the um, koshas, the pranavayus. And the third is a practical application on how to take elements from the book and to create your own practice out of it. And so I'll give examples of practices I've created, like a, uh, a chakra practice, um, a pranavayu practice, um, and by the time I've actually like written the book, um, there'll be more examples and, and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, so I think I'm going to end it there. Uh, my voice is starting to fail me a little bit, but, uh, I think, uh, the last thing I want to say here is, um, 
the desire to take on this practice um, is going to be unique to each and every one of you, right? And you may not even have a practice and you may already have a practice. I don't know. Um, like <clears throat> I'm starting to see that I'm getting more and more um, listeners. So please, please feel free to message me um, on my Instagram. Uh, it's just Yogi Zorananda. Um, I do want to hear from you guys and <clears throat> I'm really good at getting back to messages. Um, like even my Instagram account is, I don't have very many followers. I think I have like 1200, um, followers. So I'm not at that point of where like I'm ignoring messages because they're just flooding in. Um, so if you have any questions for me, please feel free to, um, uh, message me on Instagram. That'll be the best place. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, I want to hear about whether or not you have a practice or, uh, if you do, or if you don't and what you're getting from, uh, these podcasts. Cause I know, um, there, there is a side of it when I do have guests that are not particularly about yoga, but that's why I call it the yoga connection. Cause I want to connect into different facets of people's lives. Um, so I had, um, you know, my new partner on, uh, Shakti and we were talking about, uh, uh, her business in, um, coaching and, um, step family counseling. Uh, I had my producer on John and we just like <clears throat> mainly talked about, you know, um, music and did some fun, like, uh, improvisation and stuff. So, <coughs> excuse me. Um, yeah, so my my goal here um is to be educational and um you know within that goal i want to present yoga in a in a way <clears throat> that respects and honors the the traditions and the history of it while adding a new scientific languaging to it and and bringing in studies and and bringing in um understandings of it that takes it in a, in a, in a direction where it's kind of raising it out of the, the muck of, of the cults and the, um, <clears throat> and the religion and stuff like that, because I think that's where people really get misinformed. Right. And that's why people are afraid of getting into yoga because they, they now think like you go on, um, <clears throat> Netflix and watch wild, wild country, that's a prime example of, of what uh, I don't want to do, you know, and that's a prime example of why people are afraid of getting into these spiritual practices because they think that some, a couple of people are going to like utterly take advantage of them, uh, like what Osho did. Not a fan of Osho, not a fan of cults. I will openly detest any of these people. I don't care. Like, I'll, there's times I'll even go on to uh, Instagram and I'll see someone you know, some page or someone that I know or something post about an Osho thing. And I'll just comment. I'll be like, yo, this guy was a terrible dude. Like, and, uh, I have no fear in, in saying that because, um, I'd rather represent someone like my teacher, Yogarishi Vishvaketu, who is a brilliant and a wonderful person. Um, and he just like shines in the light of, of the yoga world. Um, so, uh, with that, I'll, uh, I'll end it there. 
thank you for listening. Thank you for enduring my nasally voice. Um, have a wonderful rest of your day. Enjoy. <laughs>